Okay, welcome to day 150 of Journey Through Scripture. Uh, today we're going to be looking at 1 Samuel chapters 26 and uh, through 28, and then John chapter 19 verses 1 through 27. Um, we are continuing in the narratives of Saul chasing David through the wilderness, hunting him down, trying to kill him. Uh, one thing that I thought to bring up um, during this, you might recall that when we first met Saul in the book of uh, Samuel, or we were on in this book, uh, what was he doing? He was looking for his father's donkeys, basically chasing them from town to town. And um, uh you may or may not be aware that in the Bible, donkeys are a symbol of kingship, of, of royalty. When the king rides in on a donkey, the, the exact meaning is um, most likely that as opposed to riding a horse, like a war horse, uh, the donkeys mean that here's a king who has established peace in the land so the king doesn't have to ride a horse, he rides a donkey instead. We see this several times in the Old Testament, uh, most notably David does it, but you might also recall the prophecy from Zechariah 9 about the king coming and riding into uh, Jerusalem on a donkey, you know, behold your king is coming, uh, which of course is fulfilled when Jesus rides into Jerusalem. Uh, the imagery there uh, very likely may be the idea that Saul is all about chasing the kingship, right? Like chasing the kingship, but it is eluding him, which would be a good picture of what is going on here. Uh, of course, another way perhaps to nuance that the symbolism in that um, might be to say also that um, uh, Saul is also chasing the true king from town to town through the wilderness, which is what's going on right now. Uh, so I just thought I'd flag that. This would be probably a good time to bring that up. Um, but uh more than uh, this is now now not the first time, but uh, the inhabitants of the land give David up to Saul, who is the rightful king uh, right now. Right, he's the one who's officially ruling. Um, is not David hiding himself on the hill of Hachilah, uh, which is on the east of Yeshimon? And so Saul goes, and also again with three thousand chosen men of Israel to seek David, um, and. Uh, what happens is Saul is encamped there, and he is sleeping uh, and being guarded with a being guarded by a sleeping Abner, son of Ner. Abner, of course, being the head of Saul's army. And um, David goes. Uh, it says to uh, one of the men who was with him, Ahimelech the Hittite. Notice that uh, in the accounts of David's life, there are more than one individuals who are Hittites who have joined themselves to David, the most famous, of course, being the one he kills, Uriah the Hittite, the wife of Bathsheba. But here is Ahimelech the Hittite. Um, and uh, he also says this to Joab's brother Abishai, the son of Zariah. This is the first time both Joab and Abishai are, are noted. These are the son, famous sons of Zariah who will become... Um, uh, very prominent military leaders in David's armies in years to come. Uh, so some key names here, uh, Joab and Abishai. Uh, interestingly, uh, Joab, it's the first time he's mentioned, but it's kind of mentioned like we should already know about him, right, to Joab's brother, um, Abishai. Um, but Joab has not even been mentioned in the story yet. Anyway, he says to these guys, who's going to come down with me into the camp of Saul? Um, and uh, Abishai uh, goes with him. And uh, as I said, Saul is sleeping and Abner is sleeping by him, and they find his, his spear. 
and what is what 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 does that evoke? Of course, it's uh, the incidents where Saul has tried to pin David uh, at least twice to the wall with his spear, as well as Jonathan. So that spear is there next to him, and so um, Abishai is like. Um, uh, let's let's let me pin him to the ground with uh, with this spear. Uh, it won't even take me uh, two blows to do it. I'll have him dead in a second. And uh, David once again does not take the opportunity to kill Saul. But as he did in the cave, he takes a little token evidence that he had Saul that the Lord had given Saul into his hand um, with him so that he can show that to Saul and show him the folly of what he's doing, that David is in fact not out to usurp his kingdom, and he's certainly not out to kill Saul. Um, Here we also have the uh, important phrase that David is uttering, that he will not um, put out his hand against Yahweh's anointed, against his uh, king, his Mashiach. Um, so, So he grabs the spear in a jar of water, um, that apparently was identifiable, and um, then uh, he he starts calling out on the other hill uh, to the army, and uh, he calls out to Abner, um, and Abner is like, who is this who's calling the king? And David then confronts him, you know, why haven't you watched, kept watch over your lord, the king? Um, as the lord lives, you deserve to die because you've not kept watch over your lord, Yahweh's anointed, look, I've got his spear and this jar of water right here that was at his head. And so then Saul starts calling out, once again calling David his son. Um, This, uh, uh, we've seen much about Saul's like vacillating personality here. Now he's he's, uh, just like uh, what we saw yesterday at the cave. Um, He seems very contrite and um, and 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 shameful about what he's been doing, um, and uh, and David uh, says to him, "Why does my lord pursue his servant? Uh, if it is Yahweh who stirred uh, you up against me, may he accept an offering. Um, but if it is men, may they be cursed before Yahweh, for they've driven me out this day that I should have no share in the heritage of the Lord." So essentially, he's saying. You know, if God has stirred you up, then it, like if I've done something against the Lord and, and this is his God's retribution for me, of course, I don't think David really thinks that, but then, you know, I'll offer a sacrifice that's between me and God. I, I will make, I will get right with the Lord. Um, but, you know, if there's, if there's people who have done this, they're, they're doing me wrong and may they have no share in the heritage of Yahweh. Um, they've, essentially thrust, trying to thrust me out of Israel, which is tantamount to saying, go serve other gods, verse 19. And then once again, David diminishes himself. You've come seeking me out like a flea. You're like one who hunts a partridge in the mountains. Right? I'm, I'm nothing. This is like why you, you don't even need to be wasting your time on me. Um, and Saul, again, is, is very repentant. I have sinned. Return. There it is again, my son, David. Uh, for I will no more do you harm, because my life was precious in your eyes. Um, and David's like, <clears throat> well, here's the spear. Let one of your young men come over and take it. Um, and, and then it says, Yahweh rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. Of course, uh, applying a lesson that Saul needs to know, but also um, something we're to be keeping in mind, uh, evaluating David and his actions. 
Um, and he says, behold, as, as your life was precious this day in my sight, so may li- my life be precious. And you expect him to say, in your sight, Saul, but he doesn't. He says, in the sight of Yahweh. Because as we see in, in the Psalms that David composes uh, during this period of his life, or if you like, that are attributed to him during this period of his life, I'm not going to chime in on that debate here, um, uh, David is very much relying on the Lord, his rock, his fortress, the God of his salvation. Um, and uh, it is the Lord who will deliver him out of all tribulation, he says. And then uh, Saul's, Saul's final words to David here, Blessed be you, my son David. You will do many things and will succeed in them. And those are actually Saul's last words to David. Um uh, very much uh, kind of speaking better than he knows, perhaps, um, uttering this uh, kind of or- ordinary blessing. But indeed, this is Saul's send-off to David. Blessed be you, my son David, you will do many things and will succeed in them. And then once again, rather than returning with Saul, um, he, he I think Saul has shown himself to be not trustworthy. David went his way and Saul returned to his palace. Um, then, um, David still has to figure out what he's going to do because again, Saul is not trustworthy and his options are running thin. Um, so rather than perishing one day by the hand of Saul, like how many, how many times am I going to be able to do this, that, that I'm, that I'm going to live, that I'm going to escape. He goes to the land of the Philistines and he once again goes to King Achish of Gath, um, and he's got 600 men with him. So David at this time, it would probably not be inaccurate to describe him as he has been described uh, in, in some writings as a warlord, as a tribal chieftain. He's, he's um, assembled these men and he's kind of roving about with no real place to call his own. And um, this time he uh, does convince Achish to stay with him. Um, we're also told that he has, we're reminded again of his two wives who were also with him. This is, uh, Abigail, um, uh, the former wife, the, the widow of Nabal and Achinoam of Jezreel. Um, and, uh, I just want to say, cause the, the issue of polygamy does come up and David, uh, does have multiple wives and I've talked about this before, um, but I'll say again, the Old Testament is not e- extremely uh, explicit about this. I-, I mean, I think it is in the creation narrative, right? Like one man is created for one woman. Um, but it doesn't feel the need to like comment on the morality of that every time it happens. But usually when we see it in the Old Testament, it is disastrous. And one of the aspects of David's characterization in the books of Samuel, one of his fatal flaws is that he's a bit of a ladies' man. And this, of course, reaches its zenith in the story of Bathsheba, um, where he actually kills a man to take his wife. Um, But that will be a downfall. And of course, if you're familiar with the Old Testament at all, you probably know that that flaw is multiplied in the life of David's son Solomon. Um, But at any rate, at this time, he goes to Achish, and um, Achish gives him uh, the city of Ziklag to dwell in, which becomes a Judahite city. And he's there for a year and four months. And during this time, 
David is making raids against uh, uh, Geshurites, Gerzites, and Amalekites, and these are um, we're not we don't know a, a lot about um, some of these groups. Uh, the Amalekites, of course, we've seen have constantly caused Israel trouble and have been placed under the ban by the Lord. So he's fighting against the enemies of Israel here. But uh, when he comes back from these from these raids from these battles. He tells Achish that he's actually been raiding cities of Judah, um, cities in the Negev of Judah, cities in the Negev of the Jeramilites, or in the Negev of the Kenites. Um, These are all um, groups that are either part of Israel or friendly with Israel, like the Kenites. Um, So, in other words, he tells he's raiding Israel's enemies. He's he's going to battle against. Um, the people who should not be dwelling in the land, who need to be driven out of the land uh, from the perspective of Israel. Uh, but he's telling um, Akish that he's actually raiding Israelite cities and plundering Israelite cities. And um, uh, Akish then, uh, this works and he trusts David thinking, as we're told in verse 12, he has made himself an utter stench to the people of Israel, therefore he shall always be my servant. So David is kind of fooling Achish. And then in chapter 28, the time comes for the Philistines to actually fight against Israel. And Achish says to him, understand that you and your men are to go out with me and my in my army, which of course puts David in a hard position uh, because he would be fighting against Israel. But uh, he says to Akish, very well, you shall know what your servant can do. And um, Akish sees that as, okay, I guess he's willing to do that. I guess uh, time for promotion, my bodyguard for life. <laughs> okay. Um, and so Akish really, uh, David's really got him on his side at this point. Um, that scene will then continue in what we read tomorrow. But now you have this scene that interjects in between that and it's and and what happens next <clears throat> by reminding us of the fact that Samuel is no longer around and tells us that Saul um in accordance with say what we see in Deuteronomy 18 had put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land um and uh Saul uh Saul sees the army of the Philistines realizes what he's up against and kind of freaks out because every time he he can no longer inquire of Yahweh, the Lord has completely rejected him as king. And when he inquires of him, no matter how he does it, no matter uh, an answer by dreams or by the Urim and the Thummim or by prophets, he does not he's not able to inquire of Yahweh. And so he <clears throat> reneges on this um, this no medium or necromancer policy. And says and and tell tells his servants to seek out for him um, a medium so that he can go and inquire of her, and one is found um, at Ain Dor, and so Saul disguises himself. Uh, he doesn't want to be, you know, um, showing up as the king who has banned her profession. You know, showing up at her door, so he goes to her, and he goes by night, which is sneaky. Okay, uh, and he says, "Divine for me um, by a spirit, and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you." And the woman says to him, "Surely you know that what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. 
why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? Um, but he swears to her and he swears by Yahweh. Okay, uh, Talk about li- lifting up the Lord's name to falsehood, right? He says, as Yahweh lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. So he's swearing by the name of the Lord uh, that she will be okay if she uh, you know, violates this very serious um, taboo or prohibition according to the law of Moses. And so the woman's like, all right, whom do you want me to bring up? And he says, bring up Samuel. And so she does her thing, and um, she has a vision, and it's unclear exactly what is go- what she does or exactly ha- what's going on. But the description of it is uh, she, she sees Samuel, and she cries out with this loud voice. And, and as soon as uh, he, she sees him, she says, why have you deceived me? You are Saul. Apparently, this is something she's also seen um, through her, her, her divination. And, um, and he then reassures her, don't be afraid. Just tell me what you see. And she says to him, I see a God coming up out of the earth, which is a strange uh, phrase, a strange turn of phrase indeed. And uh, one of two things is probably going on here. Either um, this is God being used in the sense of a spiritual being, some kind of supernatural being. Um, As I've I've noted, there are other places in the Old Testament where the word seems to be used that way. Or she might just be mistaken. Obviously, she's not exactly an orthodox Israelite, okay? So uh, I see a god coming up out of the earth, um, and uh, Saul asks what he looks like, and um, he, he realizes that it's Samuel when she describes him, and he bows to him and pays, pays homage, right? Like he thinks he's honoring Samuel by doing this, um, but Samuel says to him, and I guess before I go on, maybe <laughs> is this actually Samuel? Um, it's hard to tell. The, the The narrative just doesn't tell us. It may be some kind of demonic or or dark spiritual being um, masquerading as Samuel, um, or it may be that the Lord allows him to actually speak to Samuel posthumously. Um, it's just impossible to know based on what we're told in the text, and so. Um, but he certainly is speaking as if he is Samuel, uh, right? Um, he says, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? And uh, Saul tells him what's going on. Um, Acknowledging God has turned away from me, answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore, I summoned you so that you could tell me what I'm supposed to do. And Samuel is like, why are you? Why do you think I have any? Would have any other answer for you, since Yahweh has turned from you and become your enemy? Uh, Yahweh has done to you as he spoke by me. Yahweh has torn the kingdom out of your hand and has given it to your neighbor David, because you did not obey my voice, um, uh, did not obey the voice of Yahweh. That is, and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek. That, of course, is referring to when he you know, kept the king alive and uh, all of the choice um, animals and things like that, as opposed to putting the Amalekites to the harem, to the ban. And um, that is just one of the things, too, that Saul has done uh, that's resulted in the uh, the fall of his, his kingship. Um, and so then 
Samuel gives him this personally devastating information. Yahweh will all will give uh, Israel also with you into the hands of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me. And uh, and Saul is devastated by this. He falls to the ground. He won't eat anything. He's filled with fear. He has no strength left in him. And they do convince him to um, uh, to to eat. And uh, the woman, of course, is still a little worried. So she's like, behold, your servant has obeyed you. I've taken my life in my hand and listened to what you've said to me. So, you know, she wants to remain on his good side. So uh, therefore, let, let me just bring you something to eat. She realizes it's her king. So she gets her servants, um, kills um, a fattened calf, takes a, a lot of a considerable amount of flour, bakes it into into bread, and they they eat and they rise and they go by night. But with this word of Samuel now sticking in their hearts, and so we'll see what happens with that uh, very shortly. Um, okay, let's go over to John chapter nineteen. So Jesus now has uh, been put on trial, or he's kind of like, you know, he's been interrogated by by Pilate, and then Pilate takes him and he flogged him, which of course is a brutal aspect of the whole part of Roman execution. Um, uh, the flogging itself could be lethal. Um, so, and I'm always struck by how the Gospels kind of don't focus in on these things. Um, I'm not sure if, I can't recall if I mentioned this when we saw any of the crucifixion narratives in the Synoptic Gospels, but, <clears throat> you know, uh, I, I think, like, you think of, uh, say, um, something like Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ, which I think is, uh, you know, was was deeply impactful on me when I when I saw it. I've only been able to watch it once. It's It's not the kind of movie that you just bust out and watch it over and over again. Um, but it is a brutal dis- depiction of Christ's death. Um, but the brutality of it is very much what is in the forefront there. Um, it is it very much focuses on the physical pain and agony um, and destruction of his body that w- was entailed in crucifixion. And if anything, it was probably um, a light version of what that would have been like. Um, but the narratives of the Gospels, although clearly Jesus's passion is described as a suffering in in the Bible, and the Bible doesn't try to downplay it, it also doesn't dwell on it, right? So this whole flogging, it's just told to us matter-of-factly, right? Jesus, he, he took Jesus and flogged him, um, twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. It just tells us it, right? And uh, the same thing with the crucifixion, right? They crucified him. That's usually how it's described. It doesn't talk about the driving of nails through the wrists or through the ankles. Um, the, uh, the, 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 it doesn't dwell on the pain, on the physical suffering, although that certainly is part of it. Um, it's it's uh, The Gospels, in their way of telling the story, don't focus as strongly on the physical pain and um but the uh, the crown of thorns and the purple robe, of course, are this 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 ironic mockery of his kingship, which is dovetails with the theology of John, right? The way in which John is presenting all this, that Jesus, this is the hour of his glory. So this is him be- becoming the king of Israel in essence. But 
and and part of him being king, part of him being the true king, the true Messiah, is that he will do this, is that he will suffer and die. And so there and so there's this this way in which we're to envision Jesus with a crown of thorns on his head and arrayed in kingly colors in, in a purple robe, a costly purple robe robe, uh, flogged, bleeding, beaten, and yet like that that true this truly is our king. Um, I think in Revelation, uh, he's described as a lamb looking as if it's been slain, as if it's been slaughtered, right? Like, think about that, right? He's not just this cute, fuzzy little lamb walking around. It's a it's a lamb that's had its throat slit. It's a, it's a dead lamb walking around. And that's part of the imagery of what it, it looks like for Christ to reign. Um, and they, and again, in this ironic thing, they call out, Hail, King of the Jews, because they're making fun of him, but indeed, this is truly the king of the Jews, and this is what it means for him to be the king of the Jews. And Pilate brings him out, still trying to get him off, Jesus off the hook. Pilate here being, uh, I guess in a similar, not, not exactly like Saul, but being somewhat of a conflicted character, right? Like, he's he brings him out to, to that you may know that I find no guilt in him, but he's just done all this to him. He's he's just done all this to Jesus, um, very much in line with his last words yesterday. What is truth, right? Like it's not really Jesus's guilt or innocence that's going to determine what happened to him, but he, Pilate is kind of being moved by forces, at least that he dis, um, would perceive as being beyond himself. Like, what other choice do I have? I, I want to keep peace. I'm charged with with keeping peace, and indeed. The um, st- he says it more than once. He also says it in verse six: um, "Take him and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him." Like he he doesn't he doesn't even want to be the one who does it. So you know he brings him out and behold the man and the chief priests, the officers see him and are crying out, "Crucify him! Crucify him!" Um, and and Pilate says, "Well, take him yourself and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him." Now we'll note there that. Um, uh, in in the synoptics, uh, you have the crowds mentioned as a prominent, uh, as 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 like very prominently having to do with this and ha- and and expressing their wishes for him to be crucified. Here, uh, John's gospel really places this in the hands of the Jewish leaders. In fact, you wouldn't really even know that there was a crowd of more common people also there with him, which I think all. Uh, should needs to be part of the conversation about, I think, this bogus concept that that John is somehow an anti-Semitic gospel just because he's constantly talking about the Jews, the Jews, the Jews. That's a very anachronistic way to think of things, right? That like, um, that might be the way that an anti-Semite today might speak, um, but we're talking about the first century, right? That's that's twenty centuries later with all the stuff that happened, like in Nazi Germany and and things like that, and, and the the way of referring to Jewish people almost uh, pejorative, pejoratively as like the Jews, um, you know. And so that's not the way the language of the Jews is used in John. I've pointed out again and again, John typically uses that to refer to the Jewish leadership, and the term itself is not derogatory. And here, just to cap that off, John does is pretty clear that it is the Jewish leadership that is primarily at fault here. Although, of course, if we want to step back and just consider things in terms of like historically what actually happened, clearly there's guilt 
among the common people as well. But my point is that John's emphasis is on the leadership. Um, and so, so Pilate has told them, um, you know, you take him away and crucify him. And, uh, and, but of course they don't really have the authority, um, to, to do that. And they've already told him that. Um, but you know, like that's, that's kind of, this is kind of Pilate's last ditch effort to try to get out of this, to try to get out of, of doing this. Um, and, uh, they say we have a law and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. Now, uh, we want to just pause for a second and consider that, uh, as I've said, the, the title son of God tends to be used to, ref- that's a, a messianic title. Now uh, you see it in Psalm 89, you see it in uh, Psalm 2, I see it in Second uh, Samuel 7, God's son is the king, the Messiah, right? Uh, but here, uh, it is clear that uh, there are times in which divine sonship is 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 in the Gospels are is a stronger claim than that. Uh, there is, in fact, John would probably would phrase that as the the on, the only son, right? The monogamous son, um, sometimes translated false, uh, probably erroneously only begotten son, right? His only son, his unique son, his son in a way in which no one else is a son of God, even though there are people who could technically be called sons of God. No one is a son of God like Jesus is the son of God. And uh, of course, you could think of all the, you know, um, Christological theology that would go behind that. But the point here is that when they say he ought to, that, that he ought to be die because he's made himself the son of God, other messianic pretenders were not executed by Jewish uh, leaders for their claims to be the Messiah. Uh, but Jesus's claim is kind of unique, right? Like, because he's he actually ups the ante with his sonship claim. Like, I'm the son of God, yes, meaning the Messiah, but I'm also the son of God in a way that's even greater than that. You could think of of his use of um, Psalm 110, where he's like, you know, how how is it that David calls his son his Lord? Uh, things like that. But here in John, you see it in things like where in chapter 5, um, Jesus tells them, my father is working until now and I am working, and they take this uh, to be making himself equal with God, right? So calling his God, calling God his father in that sense, like I'm uh, like what God does, I am doing, and then kind of doubling down on that in the following paragraph, right, where the father loves the son, shows him all that he himself is doing. Um, the father, um, as the father gives life, um, so the son gives life to whom he will. The father's given all judgment to the son, the, that all may honor the son just as they honor the father. Notice that that sonship language is definitely uh, several levels above just merely saying, I am the king. Okay, so there is a a, a real charge of blasphemy um, going on here. Um, so, uh, and, and, but when they say this, Pilate is even more afraid. It says like, what is going on here? Um, uh, there's something compelling about Jesus that even Pilate sees. And so he goes back into his headquarters and he takes this battered and bruised Jesus. And he's like, where are you from? Which of course is another one of John's ironic statements, right? Because one of the big things that Jesus is getting across in his teaching in the Gospel of John is, I'm from the Father, and you need to believe 
that I'm I'm from the Father and He sent me. Um, but Jesus gives no answer at this point, and so Pilate's like, "You will not speak to me. Don't you know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you?" And Jesus says to him, "You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above." Uh, therefore, he who delivered me over to you has greater sin. So <clears throat> um, then Pilate, uh, Pilate, Pilate comes back out to the crowd, but here again to the quote-unquote Jews, and they're, they're saying to him, uh, if you release this man, you're not Caesar's friend, because he's, he's making himself a king, opposing Caesar, right? Which, uh, again, this, the son of God language is kingly language. Uh, and this is an ironic thing for them to say that because the Jewish people were all about, or at least like in the in the consciousness of the day, they're looking forward to to God's Messiah, right? Like they should be wanting God's King to rule. But here, because they want Jewish Jesus put to death, they're 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 you know kind of like impugning their own beliefs here, um, and uh, and and Pilate sits down um, on the judgment seat. And uh, and we're we're told that it was the day of the preparation of the Passover, and he says to the Jews, "Behold your king!" And they cry out, "Away with him! Crucify him!" And one last time, one last ditch effort, Pilate says to him, "Shall I crucify your king?" Um, and he's you know he's sitting on the the stone pavement, the judgment seat, meaning like this is my fi- going to be my final judgment. And their answer is. Again, like tragically ironic, we have no king but Caesar. Indeed, <laughs> okay, um, <clears throat> kind of like a rejection of their own Messiah, um, and so he delivered them over to be. He delivered him over to be crucified. We're told. Um, I'll note too. I we there was a this came up yesterday as well. This Passover issue, right? It says it was the day of preparation of the Passover which to us sounds like it's the day before the actual Passover meal, right? This is when they would uh, uh, get be getting ready to kill the lambs at twilight and everything. Uh, except when you realize, again, that number one, that Passover can be used to describe the entire week of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and that the day of preparation, parascue in Greek, is used consistently as the word for Friday, why? Because preparation means not preparation of the, the Passover meal itself, but the preparation for the Sabbath day on any day of the week. And so the preparation of the Passover actually means the Friday of the Feast of, of Unleavened Bread. Uh, so again, John does not disagree with the synoptics on the day that Jesus was crucified. So then Jesus comes out bearing his own cross. Um, and they bring him to the place of the skull in Aramaic called Golgotha, and they crucify him. Again, just very matter-of-factly told. Told, And a lot of the, some of the details we see elsewhere in the other Gospels, he notes the, uh, the two on each side, the two others who were crucified with him, as well as the inscription written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek, uh, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And although the Jews um, object to this, right, um, Pilate answers them, what I've written, I have written. And uh, the soldiers then go and take his garments and divide them into four parts. Uh, But John notes that the tunic 
was seamless, so there wouldn't be any way to divide it without ripping it, without destroying it. And so they cast lots and notes that this is to fulfill the scripture in Psalm 22:18, which of course is a psalm of David speaking about his enemies. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Um, <clears throat> it's uh, the note of the tunic here um, might have to do also with what with the with Jesus's washing of his disciples, because remember. Uh, John noted that when um, it was time right before supper, Jesus took off his outer garments and put a towel around his waist. So this this idea of of derobing Jesus, um, this may be connected to this. And keep in mind that when Jesus was washing their feet, he told Peter that, you know, if I don't wash you, you have no part in me. Uh, so there, as Jesus as Jesus uh, took off, lays aside his garments, here he does the same. That may be part of John's meaning here as well. And uh, and um, finally, we're told about the, the onlookers at the cross, those who are his disciples. First, we're told about the, some of his women disciples. John notes four of them, um, his mother, as well as his mother's sister, as well as Mary, the wife of Clopas, and as well as Mary Magdalene. Mary, of course, being the most popular name in first century Palestine, Palestine among Jewish people, Jewish women. So we have a lot of Marys here. Um, and so, uh, you know, I think it's noteworthy that while most of the male disciples run, uh, the women uh, stick close by his side. Um and Jesus sees his mother, and he sees once again the disciple whom he loved, which is very likely the author's way of referring to himself. Um, and, and this places the author as an eyewitness of the actual crucifixion. Because um, if I, I think the picture here is that the other, he alone is the lone disciple who has not fled and left Jesus. Um, so if that is the case, then John is in fact the sole gospel writer who himself is an eyewitness of the crucifixion. And Jesus, knowing that, um, you know, his time for his nor quote-unquote normal earthly life to be over has come, um, wants his mother cared for, and says, woman, behold your son, and then to the, the one whom he loved, behold your mother. And, um, and from that hour, it said, the disciple took her to his home. So, Apparently, Mary becomes part of John's household after this, after Jesus is no longer able to, to be his, her, her son and to fulfill his duties as his earthly duties as her son. Okay, that's it for today. As always, I thank you for being with me, and I very much look forward to being with you tomorrow. And until then, keep reading scripture, take care, and bye-bye.